we're reading the word here, let's um, let's open our Bibles. Let's stand. And uh, turn to Matthew 28, which we were at last week. And Jesus, it's in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And as we seek to know you better this morning, we pray that your word will make in an indentured mind for us and that we'll be ever thinking about this command that you've given us and to be obedient. And as we study about these different people in history who have helped change the world by your very power, may it truly make an impact on us that we too would want to do the things that they have done and what the church has done throughout history. Lead us into this truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, normally when I finish a book, I finish a book, but uh, yeah, you can be seated. Sorry about that. <clears throat> but I just couldn't finish on that. You know, it's it's like um got to kind of stay around Matthew for a little while longer. <clears throat> Actually, what um, what I'm having is a little trouble with my voice this morning, in case you didn't notice that, but uh, I'm going to have to step over here and drink some of this hot stuff, and hopefully I can uh, regain a little bit of my strength here. Voice is shaky. Hands are shaky. Does coffee do that? <laughs> okay. Out of this text, we see that there was a great commission given. And, and we talked about that last week. We went through the uh, the exposition of it and uh, the meaning behind it and application. And what we want to do this morning is look at how the church has done it through history. And mainly we're going to be emphasizing three men of God used greatly, one of them being Andrew Fuller, another one William Carey, and uh, then another one I'm sure most of you might not have heard of, or you might have heard of, Adoniram Judson. As a matter of fact, you might be uh, thinking about that first guy that I mentioned, Andrew Fuller, who's that? Uh, most of you would recognize William Carey. And we're going to stick in the Word of God, but yet we're going to use how God has uh, used his providence through particular men to raise up um, Jesus Christ in particular time periods. And uh, most of this is going to be in the 1700s, early 1800s, because that was the great missionary movement. And really throughout history, there have been missionary movements. This is one of the great highlights of the church at this time. What we do is we look back in history and we see that in their very early church in the book of Acts, we see the church growing mightily. In the first few chapters, we see thousands added daily. An incredible thing God was doing. And as the church grew, it expanded, went on out into the world, out into the Western world and Europe and 
Asia and Africa and uh, even East. And we see uh, a great expansion. The truth was being brought out. The gospel was being given. Then we had a period of the Dark Ages where still in, his God's, in God's sovereignty uh, he worked. And uh, we know that uh, he always has his church and his remnant, but for a thousand years it was a pretty dark period. And uh, we call that the medieval time period. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was really the only church for the most part, I guess you could say. There were time periods where there were groups of people or individuals trying to raise up uh, to get people back to the truth. And uh, usually they would be martyred. Uh, but then there was the Great Reformation. And that's where things really happened in a big way. And uh, Germany, Martin Luther, of course, uh, was the one that gear-headed that, spearheaded, I guess. And uh, that expanded throughout Germany, throughout uh, Europe, on into England, uh, into France. A person by the name of John Calvin, you guys have heard of him. Uh, he was ran out of France, uh, or else he probably would have uh, lost his life. Wound up in a place he wasn't looking to go, and that was Geneva, Switzerland. Not going to be talking about John Calvin this morning. We did that on a Monday night back a few weeks ago. But um, what we are talking about is he is the one that is, or should be credited, as one of the great missionaries that the church has ever known. Because he sent out many missionaries back to his homeland in France. Many of those got killed by the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they didn't like the gospel coming in there. They were setting up churches. They kept setting up churches after churches, hundreds, literally hundreds of churches, with thousands of people attending on Sunday mornings. An incredible thing was happening at that time. And uh, then uh, as time went on, uh, went on into England, we um, pick up the age of the Puritans. And uh, that was a great time period. They were evangelists. They obeyed this great commission. And so the Puritans had the same theology that Luther had as far as salvation was concerned as John Calvin had. And he set it up and uh, wrote the Calvin's Institutes, which uh, gave us great theology. And as time went on, uh, people expanded on that and the Puritans had great writing. They had the same kind of theology, how salvation was to be. That was not foreign to what Paul had taught and then later Augustine had taught uh, 300, 400 years later. Now, when we come to the time of the Puritans, as that time waned, there were Calvinists in England, and for the most part, that's all everybody was. You had Anglicans and then you had the Independents, basically, and they were all Calvinists. But what happened is that it turned into a hyper-Calvinism for the most part. And that means that they don't want to evangelize because there is no use to evangelize because they cannot hear the gospel. They cannot understand it, so therefore, why do it? We're not supposed to do that. It's God who comes along and opens people's hearts. Um, so that was the idea that they took. Now, with that thought in mind, what we're going to do, as I have here on the outline the philosophy of human reasoning. As we look into William Carey, we're going to look at the time period that had shaped the culture. What was the thinking of the world at that time? We already know what was happening in the church. A lot of good things had happened. It was strong. The Great Reformation, that was one of the strongest periods 
that the church has ever known. Theology was great, but it was waning. The church actually opened up uh, thinking. People were able now to read, understand, to think, and reason. That's a good thing. But what happens with good things? When the culture gets a hold of good things, they take it to the extreme and they leave out God. Well, what we have is a time period where philosophy became king. And many of you have heard of Descartes, a Frenchman, a man who was a Catholic, being in France, and he wanted to keep in tune with the Catholic Church and yet bring also in his reasoning... He looked and saw Protestants and Catholics killing each other. And the next thing he did after that is he started to have doubts about God. Why would confessing Christians be killing one another? Doesn't make any sense, does it? So, he got away from God. He started doubting the existence of God even. And then he stopped his doubting. The doubting was still about God. God really, as far as he was concerned, didn't exist. And he said, I think, therefore I am. You guys have heard of that, right? Augustine is the one that actually came up with that thought. I think, therefore I am. But Descartes is known for that philosophy. Uh, He rebuilt knowledge. He reduced humanity to knowing things in the mind. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing to be thinking. It's a good thing to be reasoning, right? We agree with that. But what he did was took God out of the thinking and reasoning entirely. And he's saying the mind, your thinking, is the very judge of truth. It's the very arbiter of truth. So he reduced humanity to just being thinking beings. That's what it comes down to. Well, uh, I think that's what shaped the Western thought for 200 years, at least somewhere around that realm. And that was a thinking. The Eastern thought has a little bit different idea on this. But anyway, all ideas, as far as he was concerned, had to pass through the thinking and the reasoning, the mind. The human mind was the end of all things. We know better, don't we? God is the end of all things. But that's where he took it. And what an influence that he made on culture back in the 17th century. Now this is uh, the time where the Reformation has happened. It's been expanding. It's all the way through Europe and into England. And here we have this Frenchman. And he says the mind is the end of all things. Now this was a reaction against Puritanism. Puritanism is a good thing. How many of have you heard of bad things about the Puritans? Probably in school. They were legalist and they were Victorian and they didn't have any fun and all that, you know, right? Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. These people were carriers of the truth. They had a worldview that was like what we would want to have. It was very sharp at that time. But So he's countering Puritanism. Now, that's a guy by the name of Descartes. At the same time, you have another guy over here uh, with, well, actually somebody that we would recognize today. You may not know Descartes very good, but how about Newton? And we're not talking about John Newton, and I could make a pun here, and we're not talking about Fig Newton, but we're, we're talking about Isaac Newton. Okay, You guys have heard of Isaac Newton, right? 
And a lot of good things. He was a great scientist. He was very religious. But there's one problem. Christians like to claim him as being a Christian. But his, the problem is, is that he was a deist. And matter of fact, he said that Jesus was a created being from the Father. I can't call him a Christian. I can't call him a brother when he says that. That was his belief. That was his religion. That's Arianism. That was kicked out of the church way back in the very first few centuries. He's outside the pale of Christianity. Now, there were other individuals. Uh, you can think of um, um, John Locke. Heard of John Locke? Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Jefferson. They had the same thoughts that he did as far as religion and even, even sciences. But we cannot take the science away from him. He, he was great. And I know that just destroys your thinking if you can say, oh man, I, I thought Isaac Newton was on our side and I thought he was a Calvinist and everything, but he wasn't. These are the things that he believed. But he was the architect of the understanding of the universe. Good to a point, but what did he do? And you can see why I can say that he's not on our side. Here's what his teaching was. It was the Newtonian universe. God built a great big machine. Actually, he wound it up and let it go. God builds this great machine and everything is based and can be understood on mathematical formulas. Everything. And he says we can understand everything in the universe. If we, if, if we, if we really could understand it all, we can. It's a, it's a possibility. Now, this was a way to objective truth to him. The end of it all wasn't God and it wasn't through the Scripture all this does is reflect back on the spirit of the age. What's the spirit of the age? Human reasoning. The mind. This is why we have gotten where we're at today. Even though you can say, well, that's 200 years ago, Dennis. The only thing is, is that human reasoning determined the truth. Does that make sense today? It's not Scripture, but it's whatever you come up with. Now it's called uh, postmodernism which even says you cannot reason. But their reasoning comes out this way. Whatever I think, therefore, is true. <laughs> so this laid the groundwork for the next two centuries. You have guys like Descartes, and you have Isaac Newton, uh, you have David Hume, you have Rousseau, Thomas Paine, John Locke. And I know uh, when, when I think of uh, some of those guys, I think of Penny, I've got a feeling you probably had to take courses on those in, in college when you uh, studied for what you do. Uh, and many of us probably have ran into certain uh, philosophers and their thinking. There's a, there's a good thing up to a certain point. And it's really based on Scripture. They've never admitted it, but they can't take it all the way to its end. That's why we have atheists today. You know, it's built on that same kind of thinking. These men made such an impact on the world as people started to think rationally. Thinking rationally is good. Before, they weren't even thinking. Catholic Church tells you to do this, and you do this. You know, that's just it. And you don't, even, you don't own anything. You don't own your land. You, uh, you serve the king, and whatever he says, you do. Uh, so no, no reading, uh, no kind of education coming in your way. Uh, human reasoning is the answer to the truth. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on that because I think it answers to us today as far as culture is concerned. We live in a world of no absolute truth. But really, it is because it's the truth that they say. Once they have stated that there is no absolute truth, they've just made what? An absolute statement. 
speaks their truth. Now that presents problems for us as Christians, doesn't it? To be able to relate to them. To be able to get on a point where they can understand. And, and that has come into the church and it's called the emerging church. And so they just blend right in with what the culture is saying. And the emerging church wants to reach the lost world, and that's a good thing. They, they want to obey this Matthew 28. But the thing is, they want to throw out everything that is solid and secure and is absolute in, uh, in our Christian beliefs, whether it be the atonement or resurrection or difficult things. They would rather not discuss that because that would present problems in people's minds today. They don't want to believe in a... A resurrection, that just is not reasonable. doesn't make sense. So they, they don't talk about that. Uh, the whole idea of the incarnation is another thing that's eliminated in, a, in an emergent church. And emergent churches are different. They're on different levels. So it's hard to pinpoint them. But uh, they are around us. They are in our community. They're developing more and more. And they'll get to a point where it's postmodernism in the church. And that's the idea of an emergent church. It's another fad. It's another thing that's come along. It too will pass. Now what I want to do is take you to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's see what God has to say about human thinking and reasoning without Him. <clears throat> Beware. That's, that's a pretty good word to start off with, isn't it? Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Watch out for that. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. We're complete in the person of Christ. And don't ever be ashamed of that. That's something to be boasting about. Jesus Christ. That's really the only thing we have to boast about is a person of Christ. But uh, so when this empty philosophy comes along, realize that they just bought into the culture of the world. That's just natural. There was another thing that was going along at the same time that these individuals were had to confront, especially Andrew Fuller. And that's what we're getting into here. I'm just going back into the very time period of where Andrew Fuller uh, was living in. And how he had to address the culture, which was totally against what he believed. Wouldn't you say that's the way it is with us? Would you say that the culture, for the most part, for the most part, is against what we believe? Christians. When I say we, it's uh, Christians as, as a whole. Okay, there was Unitarianism come along. And Unitarianism really did not believe in the triune God. They had difficulty with that. They said one plus one plus one equals three. I do that backwards. <laughs> and that makes sense, doesn't it? Human reasoning, Unitarianism. And it started over in England. It came over here to America. And it just about obliterated the upper colonies where Puritanism was so uh, rampant at the time, which was a good thing. But it came in and uh, it started, it, you know, what they said is that um, this Christianity, as far as the Trinity is concerned, that's irrational. Uh, that's too much of a mystery. We can't understand that. Christians have to defend the faith. 
And by not using scripture, people can come up with all sorts of things, and that's why you have many people who do not believe in the Trinity, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, all the cults, all the world religions, they don't believe in the Trinity, uh, biblical Trinity. And there's even modalism today, which uh, is, uh, I think, appears so much through the TV ministries. T.D. Jakes, that's modalism. That's how they'll embrace the Trinity, they say. But it's just God in one form, and then He goes to another form. He goes from the Father, and then He goes to the Son. Then He goes from the Son to the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. That was kicked out of the church way back. They had church councils on that, and they looked at Scripture, and they said, no, uh, three persons. There's one God, but there are three persons. One plus one plus one equals one. Right? So... Anyway, these are the kind of ideas now that is happening in England. And remember, the Great Awakening is happening at the same time. Now, we looked at the philosophy, right? What was God's answer? In history, you look at it and it says, the Great Awakening. Remember the Reformers? The Puritans? The Divines and then the Puritans? Then it started waning. And, and they started buying the things of the culture, putting it into the church, and it, it lost all these, or many of these truths. The Great Awakening comes along, and uh, in England you have George Whitfield, Reformed Theology, along with Wesley, who wasn't Reformed. And then they came over to America, got a revival going there. Jonathan Edwards then preached the Great sermon that we're familiar with, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That started quite a widespread uh, revival, a true revival, in the area that he was from and all around the New England states. And that was an incredible thing that happened. didn't last very long, but it was a movement by God, and that was his answer to what the world was saying. Now, that's taking it back into history there. And uh, Christ crucified was the message. And there is, there is a literal hell. And Edwards preached on that, and he preached about a sovereign God. Edwards preached the same thing that Luther preached as far as salvation was concerned, that, that Calvin had preached, that the Puritans had preached. And now we have it all the way up into the 1700s, and that's the same gospel truth that we pronounce today that is so at odds with much of the church today. We have history and many people on our side back in the past that believe these truths. Now, Andrew Fuller, with all this now, realizing that this is the kind of world that Andrew Fuller is in, let's see what happens here. Just a little bit about his life. We're going to move on quickly because these are three individuals that uh, really would take hours to go on, but I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, you, you laugh, I'm sure. I see. <laughs> okay. Andrew Fuller was not educated very much, uh, sixth to the eighth grade at best. Uh, God sometimes uses people who have not been educated, and He uses them for His glory. And He can do that. And He's done it several times throughout history of the church. Uh, you can think of John Bunyan, William Carey, who we're going to be talking about, that great missionary. <coughs> Not much education. Charles Spurgeon, of all people, not much education. 
But God uses those. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be seminaries because there certainly should, and especially in today's world that we have. Um, definitely need to be uh, educated, but God can use those. Uh, Fuller was uh, pronounced by Charles Spurgeon the greatest theologian of the 18th century. That's quite a statement by Spurgeon. Uh, many said he was the greatest theologian amongst the Baptists. That's what he was. He was a, he was a Baptist. He uh, came from a particular Baptist church, and that's about all there was at the time. That's where Calvinism had gone, and that means hyper-Calvinism. Most of it had proceeded into that thought. Now, they believe a lot of things that we believe as far as God saving people, and, and it's His uh, predestination, His election. A lot of those things we could agree with, but a lot of other things we would separate from. And this is the background that he came from. And so, uh, what had happened, this stagnated the church. You remember our Matthew 28 passage. It says to go out. You know, as you go, you know, give the gospel out, right? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, they said, we can't go to the lost and teach them things that, they, uh, that is commanded by God and they cannot do it. They knew that they could not, they would not do those things of God. We know about that. A man who is not... Um, saved, cannot do that. But he's still held responsible. So anyway, that's the idea that he comes from. Uh, at the church where uh, Fuller went, before he became a Christian, he said the pastor had little to say to me. He was an unconverted person. All the way up through his teen years. Because his uh, preacher believed that. Uh, they did not encourage evangelism. Because they said God didn't need any help. Well, that's true. God doesn't need any help, but He uses us as the means to the end, doesn't He? Fuller turned off everything that the preacher had to say. Why did he do that? Because he can't understand it. And that's probably what the pastor wanted. Don't, don't even you know, try to listen to these commands because you can't do them. <laughs> that's an incredible thought, isn't it? It's terribly wrong. Uh, so anyway, that's the times that he is being raised up into. And uh, he was uh, one who kept looking to Christ. And he wanted to be a Christian, but because of that theology, it was hard for him to be a Christian. And then he started seeing there was a radical change in his life. There were different changes in his affections. He became a Christian. He became a preacher of a church. And during that time of the church, he didn't preach to the unconverted. That would be in the church and outside the church because he kept that theology. He started reading the book of Acts. You read through the book of Acts, goes against the grain of that theology, doesn't it? All of a sudden you see that everyone is commanded to repent, to turn to God. So that he became drastically different. He started preaching to everybody, even the unconverted. And you know what he did? He read Jonathan Edwards. He read John Owen. Many other of those Puritans. When you read Jonathan Edwards, and you read John Owen, that was his two greatest theologians. He said both of them were his favorite author. Jonathan Edwards wrote Freedom of the Will. You guys know about freedom of the will. You have freedom of the will, but not free to choose God. 
God is the one who has the freedom to choose you. And of course, that's the greatest book about what free will really is, not the way that it's defined today. So he saw, and this is what he learned from him, the responsibility of man, and at the same time, the sovereignty of God. The two go hand in hand, and it's very hard to understand humanly. Our little pea-brain minds cannot fathom what all that means. All we know is it's true. And so we are to command everyone to repent. One thing that he did that I love so much was that he had expository preaching in his churches. That means he just preached through books. This is what they did back then. That's what John Calvin did. That's all he did. When Calvin was uh, ran out of his church in Geneva for a couple of years, uh, whenever he came back, you know what he did, don't you? He started where he left off two years ago. The same verse and just carried right on like nothing happened. <laughs> he was kicked out of there because of his, his belief. <laughs> but then they wanted him back later. Um, well, every time that you preach a truth, it creates controversy. Here's Andrew Fuller now writing a book called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. The Duty of Sinners to Believe in Jesus Christ. That goes against the grain of the teaching of the day. And the hyper-Calvinists, they didn't like that at all. They were shaped by the age of reason. The hyper-Calvinists. You remember Descartes and all that? They took their human reasoning and took it out, and that was the end of all things. God saves sinners. He doesn't need anyone or anything to help Him, is what they would say. He doesn't need missionaries. That's incredible. That is terribly wrong. Now, how can we apply this to us? What can we get out of this? We're learning history, right? Well, what, can, what does this mean to me, Dennis? Well, we need to be aware of how our culture thinks, how it acts, how it thinks. We should not have our heads in the ground. We should know where they're coming from. So when they shoot stuff at you through the movies, through television, through the books and the magazines, uh, this computer age that we live in, when they're shooting those things at you, how are you going to react? How are you going to respond? First of all, for your own life. The computer games, right? All those things. Music. Just think of all the avenues that the world has to bring it to your mind. What are you going to do with it? You're going to conform to what they have or you're going to say, okay, how can I take Scripture here and there are some things that I can take out of the good that they have to offer. But it's not the end of all things because I know God is, so what am I going to do with this? So that we have to look at at it in reasoning and knowing what the Word says and how to address the culture. Well, this later split the Baptist. You had the Fullerites and then you had the Gilites. I don't think John Gill was too extreme on this, honestly. But John Gill would then one that was the pastor before Charles Spurgeon uh, took uh, that place in, in London, uh, that church. Uh, John Gill, uh, Spurgeon, lined up with almost the same kind of theology. But anyway, there was, uh, there was a hyper-Calvinist line that was drawn now, and Andrew Filler is the one who got things going. Now, it, it's going against the grain. He's going to have to go into not only his own church, other churches, and he's going to have to address the issue that we're wrong. We have to send people out to the rest of the world. People don't like that. They're going to say, you know what? 
that's just impossible. We can't do that. Or, that's going to cost us too much money. Or, that's going to take too much time. Well, this is what he's going to have to go up with, you know, out there into to the churches that are totally against what, what uh, he's been raised up with, and he's going to say it's a duty. So he's going to have to address hyper-Calvinism, Sandemanianism, annihilationism, deism, Unitarianism. That's all the things that had been involved in the church. Now, Fuller had such an influence. He wrote that one book. William Carey, who now uh, we'll see that he's going to step on the, key, uh, on, on the scene. Fuller had an influence on William Carey. Fuller had a band of pastors that would meet together. They'd go to different churches. Fuller would express the burden that he had along with some others. Nobody had done any kind of mission work in a long time. It was dead. They, they kept it within themselves. What's going to happen with the church when it keeps itself within its own confines? It's going to die. And that's what was happening. Nobody did this. Well, he said, I'm the rope holder. I'm the rope holder. William Carey is the one who's going to go down into the pits. He's going to go out to the far land. He's the rope holder and hold on to Carey and his mission work. It's like penetrating into a deep mine where nobody had been. Fuller was to hold that rope while Carey is there. He did that for 21 years. That means he had to raise money he had to raise prayer support. The church needed to see itself as the center of missions. church didn't see it that way. How is this thing going to happen? We have to promote Christ's kingdom. It has to go beyond this. What was the theology of Andrew Fuller and then later William Carey? It was total depravity. It was unconditional election. They believed in atonement and irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, Missions. He was an apologist. Apologist on uh, as far as uh, hyper-Calvinism, saying that it was uh, the responsibility of the natural man to respond to God's call. High Calvinist reasoning was it's absurd and it's cruel to require of any man what's beyond his power to perform. They believed they were under no obligation at all to do that. Matthew 28, 19, 20. I wonder how they dealt with that. Well, quite the uh, argument that um, he came up with. If you were to look in Acts 17, 30, Andrew Fuller would read this verse here. It says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You're to go to all nations. You're to do this. And this is where Carey launched from. He would take uh, this Acts 17 passage. He would take your Matthew 28 passage. His doctrinal work launched the missionary work. What would happen if you would have sent missionaries out there during this great missionary time period and they didn't have the right theology? First of all, hyper-Calvinists aren't even going to do it. 
But what if you have people who are just straight Arminians? Back at that time, there weren't very many. <laughs> you had them in Dutch, I mean the Dutch, the, the Holland and such. But uh, yeah, it, it would come up. It's always going to come up. But uh, what are they going to take out there? Well, they're going to take a gospel that is really lax in what the truth of the gospel is. Uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God is sovereign in, in His grace and such. But uh, anyway, um, what are some application lessons we can get out of uh, Andrew Fuller? The church is to be doctrinally faithful. Andrew Fuller didn't go to foreign missions, but he was a rope holder and he had the right theology and he wrote all this down. He was a great theologian. You don't hear too much about him. So don't feel guilty if you said, I've never heard of him. It's kind of fascinating though, isn't it? Be careful because of wrong inference of Scripture. Because of logic. To Arminians, using their logic, it doesn't make sense whenever you have a call from God. See, Arminians and hyper-Calvinists really aren't that far apart, are they? Matter of fact, sometimes they're saying the same thing. Well, if God is good, why is there suffering? Logic carries carries the, all the way out and says, well, then there's no God. And that's what Larry King does. Larry King um, addresses John MacArthur every time John MacArthur has been on Larry King. And Larry King respects John MacArthur, and he'll say, but you know, I just can't believe it. I cannot believe that if there's a God, I believe that He can exist and there be suffering at the same time. See, he's taking logic. That's human logic, isn't it? If there's really a God, he could just wipe all this out. Yeah, he could. But that's not the way that he has chosen to do it. He has another way, doesn't he? And we can answer that, why there is suffering. That's one of the big reasons why people don't want to believe in a God. Because people are suffering. Do you have the answer? You know, we are to, First uh, Peter 3 says that we're to have a reason for every question that people have. If God rules, then why even pray? See how logic would take that all the way out? If God died for all, and then, then we have to understand what the all is, right? Or did He just die for a particular group? We, we know that He died for a particular group of people, but what about free will? That's in Scripture, isn't it? No. See, there's our logic again. Carnal logic is not true. Another thing is Authentic, subjective experience and authoritative truth go together. And that leads to a world vision. Devote yourselves to experience the gospel truth. Experience alone without the truth is going to get one into trouble every time. Experience Christ. Know Him. Now, I think we have to say, don't be pressed in by the age. And that reminds me of chapter 12 of Romans, verse 2. And there, it's talking about God's truth. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renew your mind. Be in the Word of God. Be thinking on that Scripture and meditate. And then you can 
understand what the will of God is when you go in and try to find out what that is. So we confront postmodernism with Scripture. Don't be afraid to use Scripture with them. We have the true documents. Reason? Absolutely. Use reasoning with them. Use Scripture and then use the mystery of it all. Sovereignty of God? Man's responsibility. There's mystery there, isn't there? Use that. That's where postmodern comes in. They, says they like to say that everything is what? Mystery. Well, this William Carey. Briefly, what about him? Well, time is about the same time as Andrew Fuller. I think uh, Carey is about seven years younger than Fuller. But do you see what Fuller has done now so far? He's given us back the truth. Now, William Carey starts reading Andrew Fuller, which takes him back to Luther, Calvin, and then Whitfield, and Edwards, a lot of those great writers of that time. And what's going on in the political realm? We'll go back out into the culture again. England is expanding to different places. All the way even east to India. And you have the British East India Company. Some of you guys remember way back in your school days. I remember hearing about that. I don't know anything about it, but I remember hearing it, right? And some of you kids have just studied it recently, probably. You probably know. I know what all that is. Uh, but anyway, that's a development. They had a governing power there in India. And when you go to India, you have a lot of Hindu people that live there. And they've got a business going there. England has a business going there. And they said, no missionary work to India. You know what that means to somebody like uh, William Carey, Andrew Fuller. That's where I'm going to go. Well, it's, a, it's a great inroads. Empire building all over. This should start expanding this all over the world as far as getting Christians out there, right? You have few schools in England. They're very illiterate for the most part. Some of the schools are the best, though. But most people don't get that education. Slave traffic is huge. It's a big business for the British. Wilberforce is living all around the same time. He's combating the culture. He did it for years. He did it for decades till finally he won and beat slavery just before he died. He kept at it in Congress. He kept at it and kept at it. Thank God for people like William Wilberforce. Thank God for people like William Carey. Anyway, you have a sea trading going on. All across the world, you have a vast world. All sorts of discoveries are, are happening. And it's time to send out the gospel. And this was from a church, the church of in England, the churches, the independent churches, the Calvinists of all people, were against it. We have Fuller writing against those things. And people are starting to have a little bit of interest. William Carey now is going to come on the scene and he has a great interest not really well educated, a man, he reads books. And he reads about what's happening out there in the world. And uh, there was Captain Cook. Heard about some of those people. Limited education, but he starts learning languages. He learns Latin. Then he learns Greek. Later on, he'll learn Hebrew. And then he goes on with other languages as he builds out of that to prepare him to be able to do all the languages where he's going to go and to uh, take that and put it into a Bible. 
in the language they can understand. He came from an Anglican church. Anglican church at that time uh, was basically what the Catholic church was, only it was in England. Some reform thought there, though. So he was nominal. He just went to church. You guys know what that's like. He just went to church. as a church member. That's all. But at 17, he was confronted with another friend. He was challenged. He attended a prayer meeting amongst these other young men. Isn't that great to see young men, young women meet together and just reading Scripture and they come out with this. Well, Hebrews 13.13 13, and... Um, I like what happened out of this. The interpretation of it is not the best, but it sure caused something to happen big time. Hebrews 13, 13 says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, that's dealing with the um, Lamb of God. And, of course, you think of the scapegoat and all that, and that's what Hebrews is teaching here. But they said, go outside the camp. And that's what he did. He went outside the camp of Anglicanism. He left the Anglican church, became a Christian, and he became motivated. And he said it was Christ who found him. Gave all the glory to God. Said it was Him that did it. His Bible became his interest. This is the guy who was a shoemaker. And he got, oh yeah, I've heard of this story. You know, William Carey, the shoemaker. He started preaching. He started reading books like Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he heard these individuals like Andrew Fuller, who would come around the area and preach about the Matthew 28. Ryland, John Ryland, Sutcliffe, he owed much to their preaching. And it shaped his doctrine. And he had been baptized as a baby as an Anglican church, and he said, I wasn't a believer. And he ran into Ryland, the great Baptist pastor, and he was baptized by him in 1783. He went on and then started learning Italian and Dutch, in French, a brilliant mind, hasn't been educated, and he pastored in the 1780s. He was a shoe cobbler and is a schoolmaster at night. He's doing all of these things. He's reading, learning these languages. God is preparing him. Moves from a, uh, to another church and starts preaching there. And he continued to read books. He read people like David Brainerd. There was a missionary over in America. Now, Kerry is from England. And he hears about some mission work. It's not being done in England. It's not started yet. They don't believe in it. But David Brainerd's doing it. He's taking it to the Indians here in America. And David Brainerd lived during the time of Jonathan Edwards. And that's what's going on. You had John Elliott also. So, Carey had this great big map drew up. You know, all the discoveries that have been made. And he used that as his prayer uh, chart on the wall there. He had a passion for people all over the world. Every time he'd see that, he would think about hell. And that was his great motivator. The hell that all these people were going to go into. And he wanted to take the gospel to them. So Kerry said, here am I, Lord, send me. And that's where things really started to happen. And he started hearing about these pastors that come around and do that. And remember, it's non-existent, really, uh, missionary work is. You had Bunyan and the Puritans. They did evangelism work before that, in the century before Baptists in England are not involved. Neither of the other ones, Presbyterians, the other independents, Congregationalists. That was for that day. Evangelism was for the day of the early church, and it's not for the day. That's how they thought. I want you to. Can you fathom that? People actually they believed that 
that it was not for today to evangelize. God has already done with that. It's fulfilled. It's done. (laughs) I don't think so. Carrie was convinced that it was a sense of duty and obligation to take the gospel to the nations. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It just stayed in his mind. Our country, he said, he had started going around to different churches, is has an obligation today. Has an obligation to take this truth out. He's using us as the means to take it to the heathen. So he left for another church. and He uh, spoke from Haggai 1-2 and it said, It becomes us to beware lest we account that impossible which only requires such a degree of exertion as we are not inclined to give. We pray for the conversion of the world and yet we neglect the ordinary means by which it can be brought about. How shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 9 and 10, right? He had a sermon that he preached frequently in um, those churches out of Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. And he had a motto that came out of that. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He puts it in you. You work it out, right? Well, he would say there has to be a love for God and a love for people. A love for people who are heathens. But then people would say, but it's too far to go. And he'd say, well, James Cook did it. He's gone all over the world, as we know. Then they'd ask, well, what are we going to eat? <laughs> you guys ever heard of that? You know, the first, you know, you're thinking about doing ministry, and the first thing that people think, yeah, but we're going to get hungry. We're going to eat. He says, we'll eat what they eat. We'll plant our own gardens. By the way, William Carey was a gardener, I believe. I think it was him. Uh, then they'd say, but they'll kill us. And then Carey would reply, People are not all that hostile. They actually were. <laughs> um, he says, we're not our own. We don't own ourselves. We belong to God. He'd respond to all the questions. And he'd say, we must pray and go. And they'd say, well, we don't have the money. Then he'd challenge them with this. Stop using the sugar that is blood money. The sugar was the stuff over here in the Americas, South America, Central America, and they were using slaves. You know, the English people are famous for their what? Tea. And when they found out they could put sugar in that tea, oh man, it made it so much better. You guys ever drink a glass of tea without any sugar? I'm sure a lot of you do now, because you know what sugar can do. But he said, stop buying sugar. Take that money and put it into missions. <laughs> he says, and stop supporting slave trade. That was that was a big deal. You know, that was a lot of it. A lump of sugar was a cost of blood. Well, these men, these pastors that got together, started a missionary society. They pledged money. They were all country pastors and none of them had any money. They did. They pledged money, but they didn't have the money to put together. We're talking, they were broke. They were poor country pastors. It's going to take a while to get this money together. So this Baptist Missionary Society, which is the first to happen here, didn't get off the ground right off the bat. Kerry told them, he said, okay, 
I'm going to go to India. That's where we're going to go. I'll go out there. Fuller said, I'll be the rope holder. Carey has shaped his theology. He left for India with his wife, who originally did not want to go. You know, you can't blame her. But if she wasn't going to go, he was going to go anyway. So she went and took his children and his wife's sister, and they sailed on a Dutch ship. Took five months to get there, and he had storms battering the ship. And the sun scorched them in the daytime. And the currents kept them away from Bengal. They were out there on the, on the high sea for like a month, and they couldn't get in because of the currents. So all during this time, he's studying the Bengali language. Learns it there on the ship. Starts translating the book of Genesis while they're out there on the high seas. Translating in their language already. They wind up in Calcutta. And it's, uh, it's actually illegal by the English government, which is where he's from, to evangelize. Wilberforce fought this and fought this to no avail. He wanted to be uh, evangelizing. Wilberforce, by the way, was reformed too. He didn't go around wearing it on his sleeve. And none of these guys actually did that much. But they were true Calvinists and true evangelists. They lived in these particular places. Uh, missionaries had to be there for a different reason than the gospel. You couldn't come in and say, I'm a missionary. No, you'd take on jobs, a livelihood. And he wound up uh, taking a, a factory and making indigo there. He made translations of books of the Bible in Bengali. Then he'd preach in the open air on Sundays out there to anybody that would hear, you know, he'd take his life at risk. And there would be some Hindus be listening to this. That's interesting. Muslims also were there and they'd stop by and listen out of curiosity. And then he studied Sanskrit, which is an ancient language. It's kind of like Latin today. He knew that that would be the basis of be able to get into some of the other languages that so many different tribes and different people have and where... Uh, uh, he's at in India and, and beyond. He he wanted to be able to understand and speak Hindustani. And uh, then there were he and a couple of others which uh, created the Simapore Trinity, or um, uh, which was three guys there. They rented their houses. They established schools there. They built a printing press and they had uh, publishers there. They wrote books. And uh, scriptures came out of this. They built a church. They preached in it. There's quite a mission field right where they were at. And after seven years, seven years, the first convert happened. Oh, that's patience. It'd be easy to give up after the first year, but he kept at it. And guess what? Even gotten involved in a Christian college there in 1821. What's Carrie's motive? Hell and the awfulness of it. The pagans who don't know. He saw them. He was with them every day. Christ is the all-sufficient merit. He is the propitiatory debt. You hear this kind of doctrine? This was what was preached by those missionaries. Christ crucified. God has made a way for people to be right with this almighty Creator God. You're all sinners. But there's only one way to God. He drew from the Reformation. He drew from what Luther preached, that what Calvin preached, that Whitfield preached. He preached the cross. He learned the culture. He translated some of their classics. They needed to know the culture. And we need to melt in to the kind of people we're around. Don't ever 
give up what your beliefs are or, you know, kind of smear it together, but whatever it takes, you know, get to that culture to make the bridge there. Don't let your culture or uh, I guess the, the culture that we're in be a stumbling block, right? We don't want that to be a stumbling block. Don't let the cultural stumbling block be a stumbling block. Yeah, it is a stumbling block, but don't let it be one, right? So he took the scripture, translated into, you guys ready? 34 languages. See how God worked through him to learn all those languages? 34 languages. Well, Wilberforce said that Kerry was the glory of the nation of England. While all the terrible stuff was going on, the slave trading and all that, here you have William Carey going out there with other men and doing that. And he saw a sense of obligation. He saw a walk with God that was necessary. So should we. Now, one last man, Adoniram Judson. We're just about at the end here. We'll quickly do Adoniram Judson. This is going to seemingly be something like a negative note on all this. Great missionary. He's the first missionary to go overseas from America. Now, we covered two Englishmen, didn't we? Andrew Fuller, who set it up for William Carey to go. Now, over here in America, I said, it's time for us to go over. This is where Adoniram Judson comes in. And uh, we're going to take a couple of scriptures here. John 12, 24. I want you to keep this in your mind. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Get that thought. Luke 14, verse 26. If one does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Adoniram Judson died a lot. How often Adoniram Judson died. How often he hated his own life. Jesus said, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Judson was a seed, fell into the ground, yielded fruit, and he illustrated suffering that God had designed. Now what I'm going to say is, it sounds like, boy, uh, that guy, uh, he's just not putting it together. Something comes against him. He should back out and quit. Well, believe me, he tried to quit. God wouldn't let him. Not at first, though. Uh, he didn't try to quit. Judson was from New England. And like many, just like everybody, he was a Calvinist. Everybody in New England was a Calvinist, it seemed. He had a deep belief in the sovereignty of God. It was shaped by people like Andrew Fuller. Adoniram Judson is a Baptist. All these guys turned out to be Baptists. But he didn't start that way either. The belief in the sovereignty of God... See, the reason I point that out, it's interesting that... And I come from a Baptist background. The Baptists, as a whole today, fight against these kind of doctrines. That the very great missionaries that they love to take on their side, and even people... Uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher, they claim Spurgeon. They claim William Carey because they were Baptists. But they never talk about what their theology was. The theology was biblical to the core. It's what we preach. It's still here. It's very minimal, isn't it? That's the culture. And that's what the culture has forced onto our church today. That's why we're different. 
That's why we want to get this thing expanded further. I, I have a vision. Uh, and it seems like it's taken a long time. Sometimes we want to give up because it just seems like it's not happening. These guys went years before anything happened. Well, it is happening. God is doing His thing. But I, I, I'd like to see it yield big fruit. I think it's, I think it's right on the verge. It could very well be. You guys feel that? You see it? Could it happen? What would happen if it did happen? Are you ready? Are you ready? Be willing. If you have different people coming in here, I want you guys to embrace them. We have some lessons to learn. Be ready. Just be ready. He was a Congregationalist. He grew up that way. Congregationalist had good theology. His father was a man of faith. Had a great perspective. Judson was trained. He was very intelligent. He started reading at three years old. At 16, he went to Brown University, what we know as Brown today. There he, quote, I'm going to say, lost his faith. And he probably wasn't even a Christian, but he knew what was true. There was another student there by the name of Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was a deist. You remember what I was talking about, deist? They were over here in America. We had many of our great leaders who had a lot of wisdom that they brought here, and I'm thankful that God used those great leaders. We have a great foundation. Many of them were deists. This Jacob Eames, that's what he was at this Brown University. This is what happens at universities a lot if they're not Christian, and even if they are Christian. You can run into some people who can influence you. This Jacob Eames definitely influenced Adnarm Judson. Judson broke the news to his parents that he was no longer a Christian, that he didn't believe in God He went to, uh, in the way that, that they did. He went to New York. He said he was going to write plays. He was amongst some people that he was uh, hanging around with that were not good influences. And that is what shaped him. He was on a trip at one time. He stayed at an inn for a night. He had to take a room. That was the last room. And it was a room that was next to a young man who was deftly ill. Terribly sick. He heard groans. He heard gasps all night. It just kept going on and on. And, and he felt for this young man or whoever this man was in that next room. And they had paper-thin walls. Morning came and Adoniram asked uh, the innkeeper who that was. And he said, well, I'll tell you, he was a young man from Brown University. And said, uh, here's his name right here. It's on the roll here. It's Jacob Eames from Brown University. Judson just froze. He was terrified. He trembled for three hours. That was the Jacob Eames who had caused him to be a deist. Now he's thinking, well, if Jacob Eames was right, where does this take him? What's, what's after this? As far as Eames is concerned, there's no heaven, no hell. That's just it. This is not a coincidence. Adnarm Judson recognizes this is not a coincidence. God used this to draw him. He didn't immediately become a Christian. It was months. But he trusted in Christ at the same time Almost instantly, it was time to take the gospel to the east. 
This is an American now. An American who is a Baptist, who is in a Reformed theology, who has a missionary call in 1809 and 1810. He commits to it. He takes his wife Anne. They go to India. That's 110 degrees there where they have cholera, they have malaria, they have dysentery, which is worse. No medicine. Matter of fact, if you get sick, here's what they would have you do. You get on a boat ride for six months out there in that salt air and maybe, just maybe, you can be healed out of that. And that was their medicine. Uh, On the way over there, he was convinced of believer's baptism because of the Scriptures. He got to India. He was baptized by William Ward, who was a close associate to William Carey. (laughs) His translation that he made for those people when he was there, he made a translation. It's still there today. Carey made 34 translations. They didn't really stick. But his did. Carey was kind of spread out. And he did so much with the little time that he had. But um, this man here now makes an impact with his translation. Just to close this out, I'll tell you something about what happened on this missionary stay that he had. He went there for 33 years before he came home. 33 years. We have a lot of people in here who have not lived to the age of 30. That's how long he stayed over there. Came back to America and then went back over. Now, when he first arrived there, the first news that he got from anybody from America was two years later. Slow boat to India. If you got sick enough, you don't take biotics, antibiotics. You go on this boat for six months. Hoping the salt water would help. Remember that? Well, Anna had gotten sick. She came back to America. She was away from her husband for two years. So now he doesn't have a wife with him for two years. Doesn't sound like much, but think about it. If if you have a spouse and you're away for two days, that's pretty bad. Two months. We're talking two years. One time there was a boat ride that took two months and it took, uh, that was supposed to take two months and it was actually six months, it was blown off course. Well, whenever Anne was back over in America, she wrote a book, the two years that she was back. She got it to churches. And she wanted them to be willing to go and to give, to support, to pray for mission work. Now, it took six years for him before there was a convert. There's a high price to be paid. We're going to close this out with this. This is the price to be paid. Watch this. In 1813, on the voyage to Burma, Anne miscarried. They're out on the high sea. They had to throw the baby in the water. Now, Carrie had told him not to go to Burma. And he went to Burma. took 12 years to make 18 converts. There where he went. In 1823, they moved to, from Rangoon to Ava. Britain was going to attack Rangoon. Everybody that spoke English was suspicious. He was from America, but he spoke English. So they arrested him. All this attack. So England is against uh, them at this time. What they did is, at night, they'd turn him upside down, 
hanging from the ceiling with a bamboo rod and a binding on the feet. And they did this for 17 months that he put up with this. Anne would walk two miles every day in the heat, in the 110 degree heat, asking for mercy. After a year, he was so gaunt and so lean. He had hollowed out eyes almost and had open wounds and mosquitoes always surrounded them. 17 months they released him because he uh, was going to broker negotiations with Britain. And so they let him go. 11 months later, Anna dies. Six months later, the baby they had died. He had three wives, and not all at the same time, because the first two died. Anne had three children. His next wife had eight children, and then she died. His third wife had two children. Of the 13 children he had, seven of them survived, six of them died. If you've ever gone through a miscarriage, it's tough. A couple of miscarriages. Losing a child. Here we're talking about six that died. God had given him strength, but started taking its toll. Darkness fell. Three months after his daughter died, he learned that his father died. And all the losses that he had caused all sorts of psychological effects. You say, why would God do this? He is obedient to the faith and taking out the gospel. Why would God do this? Well, I'm sure he's asking himself that. started doubting himself. started doubting salvation. He started saying the only reason that uh, he came there to do mission work was for his own pride, that he wanted glory. He started reading mystics such as Madame Guion and Thomas Akempis. You ever heard of them? The mystical work. Started practicing asceticism and self-mortification. He had mutilated himself. He quit his Bible translations. He became isolated. He refused to eat much of the time. He destroyed all his letters of accommodation. He formally renounced in the Baptist magazine his honorary doctorate from Brown. He gave away all his private wealth to the Baptist missionary board. He took a cut in salary. He built a hut in the jungle. He lived in total isolation. Didn't do anything. Just sat out there. Then he dug a grave beside his hut sat beside it, hoping for a disillusion. And there would be an awakening spiritual lift in his soul if he'd get out of this. He wanted all of his letters that he had sent in New England destroyed. That's why you don't have much on this man. Most of his letters were destroyed. He said, God is unknown. He says, I believe in Him, but I find Him not. It's not here. There was a turning point. We're bringing all this out of saying, you know, God's in all of this, even the worst of things. He had done so many things for furthering the gospel. His brother then died at 35 years old in 1829. There's another death. Comes news to him. 35 years old. He knew his brother was lost. When Adnarm left America, he had pleaded with his brother to trust in Christ. The letter that he got told him that his brother had become a believer. And this is the turning point. This is where he started moving forward again. This was all God's design. And he's saying that 
God has this under control. In 1831, finally, a man from China came to him and said, Are you the Jesus Christ man? Tell us. And there was an expansion of the church in huge ways. But there were more things that had happened to him and his family. After Anne died, there was another lady out there doing missionary work. Her husband died. And she went out to the jungle and she preached among the tribes. He wound up marrying her. That was his second wife. She died out there on the high seas as they were heading to America. They docked. They buried her. He goes to America. And there's nobody left there. You know, his, his family's all dead. Father, mother, brothers, everybody. His wife and other wife, they're dead. So he goes up and down America raising support. Sails away. Goes back to uh, where he did his mission work. Um, by the way, he didn't meet a, a lady by the name Emily. There we go. Kind of like that, Emily. And he had four great years with her before he died. At 61, he was sick. And he was put on a boat hoping the salt water would help him. There's a lot of suffering. He had convulsions, vomiting. In 1850, he died. Ten days later, Emily, his wife, gave birth to a dead baby. She went home and four months later, she died. You can say, what kind of good news is this? It goes far beyond our thinking of what all this is about. The gospel had gotten out. You want to hear some of the accomplishments before all this ended? At least as far as he's concerned. His Bible was done. The dictionary in that language was done in Burmese. He was the first American missionary sent overseas, Adoniram Judson. Do you know who this guy is now? Adoniram Judson. His mission and his work led to the first American mission society. There was a mission society over in England started by Carey and Andrew Fuller. This is over in America where we live. That was the first one that went on. He established a number of Baptist churches in Burma, 100 of them planted 100 churches, 8,000 believers as a result came out of that at that time that he had gotten that started. Um, Myanmar was the third country with the largest number of, of Baptists. That's why they were known as, uh, that was the great missionary um, time period that we lived in and Baptists were the ones that really got that going later on. You have Presbyterians and other ones, but it, it took somebody to get it going. And it led to the founding of the first National Baptist Organization. What I'm uh, supporting here is the fact that these men were faithful to the gospel. They preached Christ crucified. And uh, I think we today want to have that thought on our mind, that Matthew 28, 19, 20, which is so timely, that we want to be obedient. We want to think about the lost and have those on our hearts for we are to teach them to observe all that God commands. And uh, let's be praying that He would send us to the lost heathen so we could teach them. What do you guys think? Sound like a thing to do?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for the men that you have used that have glorified you in huge ways. Whenever it seems like everything is going against your people, you're still plowing forth and your eternal purpose is being done. And we know that the rewards are far much greater than all the kind of suffering that somebody like Adoniram Judson had to go through. and His family. They gave you glory. And ultimately, they have glory with you. And that's the most important thing. So no matter what the cost is, Lord, we want to be committed to your truth and to get it out amongst this generation, this culture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.